thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant and Chris Smith. What's new and exciting in the world of science? I, I note that it was um, sort of 25 years ago when scientists warned of the greenhouse effect. It's taken us a long time to really get ourselves into gear, hasn't it? Certainly the case, isn't it, that uh, scientists raise a certain point and then a long time later we decide that maybe we should do something about it. And talking of the greenhouse effect, there's quite an interesting paper which has come out in the journal Science this week. In fact, I was speaking to the guy who wrote it yesterday. Mm. His name is Oliver Phillips. He's a researcher, an ecologist at Leeds University. And he's been looking at the Amazon rainforest. And he, together with 64 other scientists, it's a huge project this, have selected 136 little plots in the Amazon rainforest where they have made serial measurements over many years in these plots. And what they were looking for was how much the trees are growing, how big they are. Uh, Basically, this was enabling them to get an insight into the amount of biomass, in other words, the amount of living material and therefore the amount of carbon locked away by the forest in total. Mm. And what's really interesting is that when they looked up until the year 2005, it looks like the Amazon is locking away about a tonne of carbon from the atmosphere per hectare per year. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you consider how big the Amazon is, Mm. it's a huge amount of carbon that it's removing from the atmosphere. But then something dramatic happens in 2005, and this is the real crux of their paper. Because in 2005 was a really serious drought in the Amazon. It was one of the worst droughts the Amazon has seen in the last 100 years. And what this did was to kill a lot of trees and harm the growth of a lot of trees, including a lot of trees in the areas that they studied. And they were able to show that uh, where the Amazon was previously consuming carbon dioxide at the rate of about one tonne per hectare per year, during this drought, that level changed to actually emitting carbon dioxide, carbon, at the rate of two tonnes per year per hectare. So in other words, what was previously locking away carbon is now giving it away, putting it back into the atmosphere. And why this is important is that the thing that triggered that drought was warm water in the North Atlantic. And that's also what spawned Hurricane Katrina. We all remember that because mm. it laid waste to New Orleans. Mm. And we think that if global warming... Uh, occurs because we don't do something to stop it then we're probably going to see more of this kind of climatic effect in terms of warm ocean waters and therefore droughts in the amazon this means that where previously we could rely on the amazon to help to act as a buffer and prevent climate change actually what could happen is that it could begin to produce lots and lots of carbon dioxide as all the dead trees break down and this could therefore accelerate climate change very very dramatically if we don't do something about it. So he's saying it's about time we move this up the political agenda and Mm. and try and do something to to stop climate change now because it'll reach a point where it gets to be too late and we we just can't stop what becomes a runaway train. Mm. Absolutely. Fascinating stuff. 
Now, first of all, Chris, Andrew in Cambridge asks, how does a Stirling engine work? Well, a Stirling engine was invented by uh, a man, I think it was a Scotsman, called Robert Stirling, not surprisingly. Mm. It's named in his honour. And he invented this over 100 years ago. It's about 120 years, or 130 years ago. And what it consists of is a piston, which is inside a cylinder. And on either side of the piston is gas. And what you do is to heat up the gas, causing it to expand. This uh, causes the piston to be moved. And you then cool down the gas, causing it to contract. And the loss of pressure then causes the piston to rise again. And this is a very efficient system. And you normally use gases like hydrogen, actually, because you can put uh, get, get a very big change in the volume of the gas for not very much energy going in. And, in fact, on The Naked Scientists, in about a year ago, we covered something called the Baxi Ecogen, which is a boiler which you can plumb into your household, and it uses a Stirling engine to extract extra heat from the boiler flue and generate electricity. So when your boiler is heating your house, it also produces energy at the rate of, or electricity, at the rate of one kilowatt, which is enough to enable you to turn off a few lights. And uh, that, so that, that's a very, very useful application of a Stirling engine. But industrially, um, they are being used to generate electricity on a grand scale. And there's one very good example of this outside Los Angeles in the desert. Um, there, what's been set up is a huge array of solar reflectors, mm. which concentrate the sun's energy onto a central Stirling engine uh, facility where the sunlight, heat from that sunlight, is directed into hydrogen gas and used to drive this piston up and down, and that then turns a turbine and generates electricity. Fantastic. Dr Chris, Bob in Essex has asked, DNA can be used for identifying humans, so can it be used for identifying other things such as insects or plants, etc.? How far can this process go? The process will go right down to the level of a bacterium. So, in other words, some of the smallest life on Earth, single-celled organisms. Because the amazing thing about DNA and the amazing thing about life on Earth is that we're clearly all related to each other, and this is where evolution kicks in, because the same DNA code, in other words, the same recipe that turns the message which is locked away in DNA into chemicals in our cells, is operating in bacteria, in fungi, in simple organisms like sponges and jellyfish in the sea, fish, mice, and even men. And that's why you can take a gene from a jellyfish, the same gene that makes it glow, and you can put that into a bacterium, and the bacteria can glow. And because DNA is the recipe book of life, if we sequence the genetic material, then we get an insight into the cellular recipe book that drives the reactions and the metabolism in a cell. And because uh, people are interested in doing that, <coughs> excuse me, there's been a, a human genome project. There's been the genome project for even grapes. So we now know the genetic code of the grape plant so we can make good wines. In fact, they sequenced, it was um, Pinot which got its genome sequenced. Uh, wow. And people have also done mice and rats, horses, cows, bees. The honeybee's been sequenced recently. Mm. And, of course, bacteria. And what scientists are now doing is beginning to assemble genetic maps of different strains of bacteria. Because, for instance, we know that E. coli lives in all of us. We have billions, trillions of E. coli living inside our intestines. Ooh. And the interesting thing is that they live quite harmlessly and happily alongside us. But at the same time, there are other types of E. coli, which if you get those in your intestine, will make you very ill. When you go on holiday and you mm. get traveller's diarrhoea, this is often an abnormal form of E. coli that's got inside you. 
what's the difference? Well, there must be some genetic difference between these two different types of E. coli that's capable of triggering those symptoms. If we can work out how it does that, we can work out how to stop it. So scientists are now genetically fingerprinting different strains of different bugs in order to get insights into how they trigger these quite devastating conditions. So the answer to Bob's question is absolutely. You can use DNA technology just as you do on a human on virtually any living thing on Earth because they're all running the same genetic recipe and therefore we can understand exactly what messages they're making in their cells and therefore how their cells work. Great. Our next question, <clears throat> Dr Chris. Mike in Colchester says, When I turn the page of my paper, if I wet my finger, the page is easier to turn. Why is this? I've often wondered that. Well, in order to turn the page, you have to get friction occurring between your finger and the surface so that there's a degree of attraction or grip so that you can get purchase on the paper and then exert a force on it to make it move. Uh, the problem with a smooth sheet of paper and your finger is that the two can't get as close together as they could to get the maximum friction. If you lick your finger, because water is a runny liquid, then it will spread out and get very, very close to the, the sort of wrinkled surface of your finger. It will also get into the surface of the paper and get very close to that. And because water is a sticky molecule, it acts as a kind of molecular glue between your fingertip and the page surface so that it gives you an increased amount of friction, enabling you to turn the page over. So you get, you get a stickier attraction between the two surfaces, enabling you to apply that force and turn the page. Mm, fascinating stuff, as always, Dr Chris. Now, Joe in Kettering says, bit of a weird one. Um, most assume if we encountered alien life forms, they would have to be oxygen breathing. Although we have life on this planet that does not breathe oxygen. With this in mind, what are the chances of there being other life out there? When I was at the AAAS conference, that's the American Association for the Advancement of Science, in St Louis in America in 2006, I had uh, three space scientists from America in front of me who were actually involved in looking for life on other planets one way or another. And I also had Mike Hanlon, who's the science editor of the Daily Telegraph, sitting there. And I asked all of them, uh, what do you think the prospects of finding life in outer space other than human and earthbound life in the next 50 years? And they all said at least more than 10%. So they were all very optimistic that we're going to see life discovered elsewhere in the universe in our lifetimes. Uh, the suggestion that it has to be like us or to breathe oxygen like us probably isn't true, though, because, uh, it, quite as Joe points out, life, if it exists, will evolve, probably, to exploit whatever source of energy it can get. And I think the best evidence of this is that I was talking to a lady a couple of years ago called Lisa Pratt, who is a researcher in America. She's at the University of Illinois. And she's been working with scientists in South Africa in gold mines. And a few years ago, they published a paper in the journal Science where miners near Johannesburg cracked into a patch of rock in a gold mine and enormous amounts of water began to flow out. And samples of this water were taken and scientists analysed the water and they showed by using various chemical methods, that this water had been isolated from water anywhere else on Earth for at least 15 and perhaps as long as 40 million years. Mm -hmm. So the water had been underground for a very long time. When they looked in the water, it was thriving with bacteria. So these bacteria were in complex communities and there were lots of them. So somehow life was being sustained three kilometres underground in this gold mine and it had been there for millions of years without any kind of energy coming into it from the sun. 
So how is it surviving? Well, when the scientists looked at these bacteria, what they found was that they were capable of consuming energy from radiation. The rock down there contains a lot of uranium, and when uranium radioactively decays, it gives out what are called alpha particles. These are the nuclei of helium atoms. They're big, heavy particles. When this zips through water, it can rip apart water molecules, producing what are called radicals, hydroxyl radicals. And this was reacting with fool's gold, iron pyrites, in the rock, and producing forms of sulphur that these bacteria were then able to use. So indirectly, these bacteria are living off radiation. They're not using sunlight. They're not using plant life. They're living off radiation. So there's no reason to suspect that if alien life does crop up elsewhere, whether it's in this solar system or beyond, then there's no reason to suspect that it has to be governed by the same systems that we're governed by here on Earth. We have evolved to exploit the environment we live in. But life on another planet may have evolved, will have evolved, probably, to exploit a very different set of chemistries. And as a result, it's likely to be dramatically different from us. Wow. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Now, Dr. Chris, Charlie in Chelmsford asks, why doesn't the Earth fall out of the sky and where did all the water come from? Two questions there, aren't there? Mm. Uh, First of all, the Earth doesn't fall out of the sky because the Earth has a sky because of the Earth's presence. In other words, the Earth is a very massive object. The weight of, that's the wrong word, the mass of the Earth. I got told off for saying weight of the Earth the other day. The mass of the Earth is 10 to the 24 kilograms, in other words, one with 24 zeros after it in kilos. So the Earth's pretty heavy. Now that means the Earth has very high amounts of gravity, sufficiently high gravity, to hang on to even the very lightest particles, gases. And so we're able to cling on to a shroud or an envelope of gas around the Earth, and that's our atmosphere. Um, Some planets, which are much smaller than the Earth, don't have enough gravity to hang on to a big atmosphere and they lose theirs. Others, like us, are lucky and they have an atmosphere. So the sky is because the Earth exists, not the other way around. And because the Earth is a ball and because the Earth is uh, orbiting the sun, it's a ball orbiting in space, it has this shroud of gas around it, which is spherical, effectively like the Earth is. It's It's like a ring around the Earth. So the Earth isn't going to fall out of the sky because the Earth is attracted to the Sun by gravity and the Earth orbits the Sun and it takes that shroud of gas with it. That was the first point. Second point is where does all the water on Earth come from? And there's quite a lot of it. If you look in the world's oceans, if you could measure it, if you had a giant way of measuring it, you'd find there's about 1.37 billion cubic kilometres of water on Earth. Uh, That's a lot of water. Um, Where scientists think most of it came from is in the form of comets, comets. The comets are massive icy dirt balls which periodically slam into planets, a lot more so in the early stages of the solar system's evolution than now. Most of them have been soaked up. But there are lots of icy bodies rocking around in the solar system and when they collide with a planet like the Earth, they melt, shed their water, and that then adds to the level of the Earth's oceans. And if you average it out, it translates into about an inch of water every 20,000 years or so. But as I say, a lot more would have been deposited here in the early phases of the solar system's life than more recently. So that's how we think most of the water got here. Most of it came in the form of comets. 
Now, Chris, Carol has asked, what causes fits in people? And um, connected to that, there's also another one here. Um, why, when you have a fit, why does your body feel so sore afterwards? That's from Aaron. So two questions in one about fits. Okay, well, fits. Um, we could talk about epilepsy or seizures, for example. And epilepsy is a condition where you have periodically these seizures. Sometimes fits just happen as a one-off. There are a whole host of reasons why they happen, but when they happen, what's, what's occurring is that patches of the brain, the nerve cells in the brain, are discharging more than they should. And that discharge begins to spread to involve other regions of the brain and in the end all of the nerve cells in the brain begin to fire nerve impulses chaotically and this causes you to lose consciousness and people who are having a fit like this usually fall to the ground because they lose control of their muscles. They then have, if they're having what's called a tonic-clonic seizure, first of all there'll often be a very profound tightening of all the muscles. All of the muscles try and contract together and this is because the motor regions in the nervous system that normally control muscle will all activate together so it will try and turn all your muscles on at the same time. So people tend to go into this very tight spasm and this can last a long time and then they'll start periodically jerking or shaking as various things, uh, mus muscles work against each other and then they relax and then they'll come round. And when they come round, very often they're quite woozy afterwards because it's, it's your brain resetting itself and people often find they've been disorientated and they often feel quite sleepy and they often say they're really quite confused and they, they wake up and think, well, how did I get here? Um, but then luckily there are often no ill effects. Once they recover, it's fine. Um, now, why people have those fits... As I say, there's a number of different reasons. They can be metabolic causes. So when your metabolism's not right, if you have the wrong levels of salts and sugars in the bloodstream, this can do this. At the same time, it can also be injury to the nervous system. If you have brain damage, perhaps if you've had a head injury, for example, this can damage clusters of nerve cells and it can make them more electrically excitable than they should be. So they can start to fire off these impulses periodically. People can take drugs to stop that happening. And drugs can also sometimes trigger fits. So it depends on what kind of drugs you're taking. Uh, and also withdrawal from drugs. If people become alcoholic, because alcohol is a CNS depressant, it turns down the activity in nerve cells. If people who have been very, very heavy drinkers for a long period of time suddenly stop drinking, brain cells which have responded to this chronic alcohol depression suddenly become more active than they should, and this can trigger fitting as well. So you have to be very careful if uh, someone who's an alcoholic goes into hospital for whatever reason and doesn't have alcohol or some kind of way of keeping down the activity of those brain cells because they can have fatal fits. Now, as to why you feel sore afterwards, this is probably because of what I mentioned, which is that when people have a fit, all of the muscles go into spasm. Your muscles work very, very hard and, and often pull against each other. Now, normally there are mechanisms in place that stop your muscles contracting when they start pulling too hard. But when these mechanisms are short-circuited by a fit, sometimes muscles can exert much more force on each other and on your skeleton than they should. And as a result, it can leave you feeling quite sore and bruised afterwards. So that's another reason why people feel unwell after a fit, because they feel as though they've done 10 rounds with Mike Tyson. Gosh. John has been on the phone and um, he says, Dr Chris, in the late 40s and 50s, an unusual amount of inclement weather was blamed onto the exploding of atomic bombs by some experts. Is this still believed? I'm not sure what the current hypothesis is with atomic bomb tests and rainfall, but it's not an implausible theory. For instance, scientists have shown in the last few years that sun 
and solar activity is linked to rainfall because arriving solar radiation that hits the Earth's atmosphere can trigger the formation of water droplets in the atmosphere. What that's doing is giving a nucleation site, in other words, a surface on which water molecules of water vapour can condense and form droplets. So anything that puts particles into the atmosphere can form a nucleation surface to encourage water to condense. You can do this artificially. In fact, the Chinese have been seeding lots of rain around various drought areas in China by using silver iodide. These tiny particles go up into the uh, stratosphere, into the clouds, um, and they encourage more water molecules to jump onto the particles, and as a result, they trigger rain. So it's not un unlikely that by putting lots of particles into the atmosphere, you could trigger more rainfall. You could at least have some kind of impact on Earth's climate. Whether or not a nuclear bomb in the grand scheme of things is enough, that's the bone of contention because there are other things on Earth that put far more dust and debris into the atmosphere. And I'm thinking volcanoes, for example, because a big volcano can eject thousands, millions of tonnes of material, dust and other particles up into the atmosphere. And we know that because when Mount Pinatubo blew up in the Philippines, here in the UK, we were getting the most beautiful sunsets that mm. whole summer mm. because the dust in the atmosphere was scattering the light. Even, even the moon went a funny yellow colour because the white light coming from the moon was being scattered by the... Uh, particles in the atmosphere, and this was making the red light from the white light get uh, the blue light get more scattered, making the moon look a yellowy red colour. Mm. So we know that particles in the atmosphere can spread a long distance. I don't know of any evidence that says that nuclear bombs definitely were responsible for triggering more rainfall. I'd have to look into that, but it's not in totally implausible. George says that his brother has just had Bell's palsy, and it has affected his face. Can you explain what this condition is and what the effects are? Chris? Yeah, um, Bell's palsy is where the facial nerve, which is the main motor nerve that supplies your muscles of facial expression, uh, stops working properly on one side of your face. And so the muscles that it would normally supply are not as active as they should be. They may in some cases be completely paralysed. And as a result, the face on the affected side is droopy. And so if you look at someone, you'll see that they're down in the mouth on that side their eye might be watering because they can't close it and blink properly. And they also may look sad on one side of their face, but much more smiley on the other. If you ask people with this to smile, they'll show you their teeth beautifully on one side, but not on the other side of their face. Uh, it's a bit of a mystery as to why this happens, because in a large majority of cases, no cause is found, except that the nerve doesn't seem to be working properly. But there are some other causes, and one of them is the uh, our old friend chickenpox. There is um, an association between getting a form of shingles, which comes out in the ear, and at the same time as it's inside your ear, you also get pinching or inflammation of the facial nerve, where it goes through a very narrow hole, the, uh, the foramen, to get inside your skull. And so scientists and doctors think that one reason why that the facial nerve is affected like that is because the virus affects the facial nerve fibres and causes the nerve to swell, and it then pinches itself off in this very narrow gap. That's called Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, so that occurs from time to time. There may also be an association with herpes simplex virus, the um, cold sore virus, doing the same thing. Uh, other viruses could trigger this, and then there are more si sinister things. Um, inside the skull, you can actually get tumours, which can affect the nerve um, which su supplies your ear, but because the facial nerve runs very close to it, uh, the facial nerve can be affected by the either the tumour itself or when a surgeon has to remove the tumour. So that can be another reason why um, people's faces get droopy on one side. But as I say, the vast majority of the time, we don't find out what causes it. 
and occasionally people try taking steroids and this can sometimes help but sometimes it just goes away and sometimes it doesn't um, and it's down to finding out what, what's actually going on in the individual so it's a very, very large number of possible causes and it needs investigating if it's suddenly occurred it does need looking into mm. Graham in Chelmsford says that he's a rugby player and um, what he wants to know is why does he get cauliflower ears and how can he stop this? Right, well, if you look at what the ears are, they are uh, fibrous cartilage with skin and relatively little blood supply. And when you get a bad injury to the ear, then you get bleeding and rupture of blood vessels and you get bleeding into the subcutaneous tissue of the ear. And this provokes inflammation. And as the bleeding is resolved and organised by inflammatory cells that come in and munch up the blood clot and the bruising, uh, it also damages the tissue and leads to the formation of more fibrous tissue where there wasn't any before. And as a result, the ear gets progressively more and more deformed. And this is a cauliflower ear. Um, and so, unfortunately, th th I don't think there's any easy way to stop this. You just have to protect your ears. And I think some rugby players tend to try and wear some kind of protectors over their ears mm. to stop them being bashed in this way. The other people that are vulnerable to this, of course, are boxers, because mm. until they were wearing those hats, um, they were often being pounded on the head very hard, and this would lead to this bleeding into the ear. Dangerous stuff, if you ask me. Our next one. Steve and Jan are in Ipswich and they want to know how Wi-Fi works and how do you apply for it? We don't have to apply for Wi-Fi. It stands for, well, it's, it's wireless internet. And in order to get it, you just go and buy what's called a router from any kind of hardware store, computer hardware store. The way it works is that it's using microwave radio signals to tune into computers that emit similar signals and instead of using a physical piece of cable to connect your computer to another computer, a network, you're using radio waves. And the choice of microwaves is such that they can pass very readily through walls and concrete and glass so that by putting one of these routers, which actually is also connected to the internet at one point in your house, you can then connect to that router from any point in your house, giving you wireless access continuously to the internet without having to have cables trawling all over the house. So a much better way of doing it. Mark has rung. He says that his wife has diabetes and she's taking Evangeline for it. What are the side effects if she came off this and tried to control her diabetes with diet instead of using the pills? Her blood sugar has never been above 10 without the pills. With them, it is 4. Yeah, I mean, no one should ever change or stop their medication um, without some medical advice to do so because especially with diseases like diabetes, that can be dangerous. Um, the answer is that there are two different types of diabetes. There's type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. And type 1 diabetes is where people cannot make any insulin at all. In their pancreas, the beta islets of Langerhans, the cells that make insulin, have been destroyed by the immune system. So these people completely lack insulin and the only treatment is to inject insulin. Type 2 diabetes is a bit different. This is where the body can make insulin, but cells are resistant to its effects. So you need more insulin to achieve the same effect than you would do normally. And this is usually associated with gaining too much weight. It's the um, maturity onset diabetes, or it's obesity-associated diabetes. Some uh, doctors refer to this as diabetes. Mm. Um, and what happens there is that by giving drugs, what those drugs do is to boost the production of 
uh, insulin from the pancreas, they also, another class of drugs, can make cells much better at responding to the insulin signal. So there's a whole different classes, uh, set of different drugs that you can use. Um, and the aim of taking these drugs is to keep blood glucose under control because uh, the normal level of blood glucose in a healthy person is about 5 and we know that that's most compatible with good health. If you let your blood glucose get too high, once it goes beyond 10, then you start to lose um, glucose in your urine, and glucose is osmotically active. That means it attracts water. So as the glucose gets peed out, it pulls out water with it, and it's dehydrating. So people who have this get dehydrated, and they also feel very, very thirsty. At the same time, running those high levels of glucose like that um, can lead to the formation of something called advanced glycation end products. The glucose molecules in the blood start to stick themselves onto other tissues and other, and other proteins on cell surfaces, and this can damage those surfaces or make them much thicker. And as a result of that, the immune system can stop working so well, blood vessels can fur up, and also you can get knock-on metabolic effects where you get things like too much fat in the bloodstream, you get high cholesterol levels and high lipid levels in the bloodstream, which is bad for your blood vessels. At the same time, the glucose gets soaked up into the coverings of nerve fibres and turned into another chemical that soaks up more and more water, making the nerves swell. And this can pinch off nerves and cause what's called neuropathy, nerve damage. So it's bad news to run too high a glucose. So you want to keep the glucose level down, but of course the, offs the downside is if you get it too low, then you can begin to feel woozy and you can even go into a coma if your blood glucose falls too low. So the aim of taking medication is to get the level down to just the right amount. So it's not too low that you're getting symptoms, but it's not too high that you're going to get these other damaging effects of having a glucose level that's too high. So it's really important to test blood sugar levels regularly and above all eat a healthy diet because minimizing your refined carbohydrate sugar intake and at the same time eating what would be classed as a healthy diet with lots of fruit and vegetables but not too much sugary fruit so by that i mean don't don't max out on the fruit but the vegetables are very good because they have antioxidants this is a, a good healthy diet which will help to offset some of the damaging effects of the diabetes that's it for this week our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget, you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 